Part three of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three Interlude The woman's eyes were filled with tears, for which the doctor was privately thankful. At least the original shock had worn off. And uh, there's nothing we can do? Uh, nothing? There was a slight catch in her voice. I'm afraid not. Not yet. There are research teams working on the problem, and one day, perhaps. Then he shook his head. But not yet. He paused. I'm sorry, Mr. Stanton. The woman sat there on the comfortable chair and looked at the specialist diploma that hung on the doctor's wall, and yet she didn't really see the diploma at all. She was seeing something else, a kind of dream that had been shattered. After a moment she began to speak, her voice low and gentle, as though the dream were still going on, and she were half afraid she might waken herself if she spoke too loudly. Jim and I were so glad they were twins, identical twin boys. He said, I remember, he said, we ought to call them Ike and Mike. And he laughed a little when he said it to show he didn't mean it. I remember, I was propped up in the bed the afternoon they were born, and Jim had brought me a new bed jacket, and I said I didn't need a new one because I would be going home the next day. And he said, Hell, kid, you didn't think I'd just buy a bed jacket just for hospital use, do you? This is for breakfasts in bed, too. And that's when he said he'd seen the boys and said we ought to name them Ike and Mike. The tears were coming down Mr. Stanton's cheeks heavily now, and grief made her look older than her twenty-four years. But the doctor said nothing, letting her spill out her emotions in words. We'd talked about it before, you know, as soon as the obstetrician found out that I was going to have twins. And Jim, uh, Jim said that we shouldn't name them alike, unless they were identical twins or mirror twins. If they were fraternal twins, we'd just name them as if they'd been ordinary brothers or sisters or whatever, you know. She looked at the doctor, pleading for understanding. I know, he said. And Jim was always kidding. If they were girls, he said we ought to call them Flora and Dora, or Annie and Fanny, or maybe Susie and Floozy. He was always kidding about it, you know. I know, said the doctor. And then, when they were identical boys, he was very sensible about it. We'll call them Martin and Bartholomew, he said. Then, if they want to call themselves Mart and Bart, they can, but they won't be stuck with rhyming names if they don't want them. Jim was very thoughtful that way, Doctor, very thoughtful. She suddenly seemed to realize that she was crying, and took a handkerchief out of her sleeve to dab at her eyes and face. I'll have to quit crying, she said, trying to sound brave and strong. After all, it could have been worse, couldn't it? I mean, the radiation could have killed my boys, too. Jim's dead, yes, and I've got to get used to that. But I still have two boys to take care of, and they'll need me. Yes, Mr. Stanton, they will, said the doctor. They'll both need you, and you'll have to be very gentle and very careful with both of them. How, how do you mean that? she asked. The doctor settled back in his chair and chose his words carefully. 
identical twins tend to identify with each other mr stanton there is a great deal of empathy between people who are not only of the same age but genetically identical if they were both healthy there would be very little trouble in their education at home or at school any of the standard tests on psychodynamics and education will show you the pitfalls to avoid when dealing with identical siblings but these boys are no longer identical one is normal healthy and lively the other is well as you have seen he is slow sluggish and badly coordinated that condition may improve with time but until we know more about such damage than we do now he will be an invalid that's the trouble with radiation damage mr stanton even when we can save the victim's life we cannot always save his health you can see i think what sort of psychic disturbances this can bring about in such a pair the ill boy tends to identify with the well one and unfortunately the reverse is true if they are not properly handled during their formative years mr stanton both can be badly damaged emotionally i i think i understand the woman said but what sort of thing should i look out for i suggest that you get a good man in psychic development the doctor said i'd hesitate to prescribe it's out of my field but in general most of your trouble will be caused by a tendency for the pair to swing into one of two extremes mutual antagonism can arise if one becomes jealous of the other's health while the healthy one becomes jealous of the extra consideration shown his crippled brother or on the other hand the healthy boy may identify so closely with his brother that he feels every hurt or slight real or imagined he becomes overly solicitous overprotective at the same time the other brother may come to depend completely on the healthy twin in both these situations there is a positive feedback which constantly worsens the situation it requires a great deal of careful observation and careful application of the proper educational stimuli to keep the situation from developing toward either extreme you'll need expert help if you want both boys to display the full abilities of which they are potentially capable i see could you give me the name of a good man doctor the doctor nodded and picked up a book on his desk i'll give you several names you can pick the one you like they're all good men there are many good women in the field too but in this case i think a man would be best of course if one of them thinks a woman is indicated that's up to him as i said this isn't my field he opened the small book and rifled through it to find the names he wanted the image of the knife on the glowing screen was clear and finely detailed it was bart thought as though one were looking through a window into the knife's nest itself only the tremendous depth of focus of the lens which caught the picture gave the illusion a sense of unreality everything background and foreground alike was sharply in focus the knife moved in slow motion giving the watchers the eerie feeling that he was moving through a thicker heavier medium than air in a place where the gravity was much less than that of earth speed the tape up to normal said colonel mannheim to the man who was operating the machine 
If there is anything Mr. Stanton wants to look at more closely, we can run through it again. As if in obedience to the colonel's command, the knipe seemed to shake himself a little and go about his business more briskly, and the air and gravity seemed to revert to those of Earth. "'What's he doing?' Stanton asked. The knipe was doing something with an odd-looking box that sat on the floor in front of him. He's got a screwdriver that he's modified to give it a head with an L-shaped cross-section, and he's wiggling it around inside that hole in the box. But what he's doing is a secret between God and the knipe at this point, the colonel said glumly. Stanton glanced away from the screen for a moment to look at the other men who were there. Some of them were watching the screen, but most of them seemed to be watching Stanton, although they looked away as soon as they saw his eyes on them. Trying to see what kind of a bloke this touted Superman is, Stanton thought. Well, I can't say I blame him. He brought his attention back to the screen. So this was the knife's hideaway. He wondered if it were furnished in the fashion that a knife's living quarters would be furnished on whatever planet the multi-legged horror called home. Probably it had the same similarity as Robinson Crusoe's island home had to a middle-class 19th-century English home. There was no furniture at all as such. Low-slung as he was, the knife needed no tables for his work, and sleeping was a form of metabolic rest that he evidently found unnecessary, although he would sometimes just remain quiet for periods of time ranging from a few minutes to a couple of hours. We had a hard time getting the first cameras in there, the colonel was saying. That's why we missed some of the early stages of his work. There, look at that. That attachment he's making? That's right. Now, it looks as though it's a meter of some kind, but we don't know whether it's a test instrument or an integral part of the machine he's making. The whole thing might be a test instrument. After all, he had to start out from the very beginning, making the tools to make the tools to make the tools, you know. It's not quite as bad as all that, said one of the other men, who had been briefly introduced to Stanton as Fred Mayer. After all, he had our technology to draw upon. If he'd been wrecked on Earth two or three centuries ago, he wouldn't have been able to do a thing. Granted, the colonel said agreeably, but it's quite obvious that there are parts of our technology that are just as alien to him as parts of his are to us. Remember how he went to all the trouble of building a pentode vacuum tube for a job that could have been done by transistors? His knowledge of solid-state physics seems to be about a century and a half behind ours. Not completely, Colonel, Mayer said. That gimmick he built last year, the one that blinded those people in Baghdad, had five perfect emeralds in it connected in series with silver wire. That's true. Our technologies seem to overlap in some areas, but in others there's total alienness. Which one would you say was ahead of the other? Stanton asked. Hard to say, said Colonel Mannheim, but I'd put my money on his technology as encompassing more than ours, at least in so far as the physical sciences are concerned. I agree, said Mayer. He's got things in that little nest of his that... He stopped and shook his head slowly, as though he couldn't find words. 
I'll say this, Bart Stanton said musingly. Our friend, the Nipe, has plenty of guts and patience. He smiled a little and then amended his statement. From our point of view, that is. Colonel Mannheim's face took on a quizzical expression. How do you mean? I was about to agree with you until you tacked that last phrase on. What does point of view have to do with it? Everything, I should say, Stanton said. It all depends on the equipment an individual has. A man who rushes into a burning building to save a life wearing nothing but street clothes has courage. A man who does the same thing when he's wearing a nullitherm suit is an unknown quantity. There is no way of knowing from that action alone whether he has courage or not. Mayer looked a little dazed. Pardon me if I seem thick, Mr. Stanton, but are you saying that the Nipe's technological equipment is better than ours? Not at all. I'm talking about his personal equipment. He turned again to the colonel. Colonel Mannheim, do you think it would require any personal courage on my part to stand up against you in a face-to-face -face gunfight? The colonel grinned tightly. I see what you mean. No, it wouldn't. On the other hand, if you were to challenge me, Bart Stanton continued, would that show courage? Not really. Foolhardiness, stupidity, or insanity, not courage. Then neither of us can prove we have guts enough to fight the other, can we? Colonel Mannheim smiled grimly and said nothing. But Mayer, who evidently had a great deal of respect for the colonel, said, Now, wait a second. That depends on the circumstances. If Colonel Mannheim, say, knew that forcing you to shoot him would save someone else's life, someone more important, say, or maybe a lot of people, then... Colonel Mannheim laughed. <laughs> Mayer, you've just proved Mr. Stanton's point. Mayer gaped for a half-second then burst into laughter himself. Pardon my point of view, Mr. Stanton. I guess I am a little slow. Mannheim said, Precisely. Whether the Nipe has courage or patience or any other human feeling depends on his own abilities and on how much information he has. A man can perform any action without fear if he knows that it will not hurt him or if he does not know that it will. He glanced at the screen. The knife had settled down into his sleeping position, unmoving, although his baleful violet eyes were still open. Cut that off, Mayor, the colonel said. There's not much to learn from the rest of that tape. Have you actually managed to build any of the devices he's constructed? Stanton asked. Some, said Colonel Mannheim. We have specialists all over the world studying the tapes. We have the advantage of being able to watch every step the knife makes, and we know the materials he's using to work with. But even so, the scientists are baffled by many of them. Can you imagine the time James Clerk Maxwell would have had trying to build a modern television set from tapes like this? I know exactly how he'd feel, Mayer said glumly. You can see, then, why we're depending on you, Mannheim told Stanton. Stanton merely nodded. 
the knowledge that he was actually a focal point in human history that the whole future of the human race depended to a tremendous extent on him was a realization that weighed heavily and at the same time was immensely bracing and now the colonel said i'll turn you over to the psychology department they'll be able to give you a great deal more information on the nipe than i can the nipe squatted brooding in his underground nest waiting for the special crystallization process to take place in the sodium gold alloy that was forming in the reactor how long he wondered he was not thinking of the crystallization reaction he knew the timing of that to the fraction of a second his dark thoughts were focused inwardly upon himself how long would it be before he would be able to construct the communicator that would put him in touch with his own race again how long before he could discourse again with reasonable beings for how much longer would he be stranded on an insane planet surrounded by degraded insane beings the work was going incredibly slowly he had known at the beginning that his knowledge of the basic arts required to build a communicator was incomplete but he had not realized just how painfully inadequate it was time after time his instruments had simply refused to function because of some basic flaw in their manufacture some flaw that an expert in the field could have pointed out at once time after time equipment had had to be rebuilt almost from the beginning and time after time only cut and try methods were available for correcting his errors not even his prodigious and accurate memory could hold all the information that was necessary for the work and there were no reference tapes available of course he had long since given up any attempt to understand the functioning of the mad pseudo-civilization that surrounded him he was quite certain that the beings he had seen could not possibly be the real rulers of this society but he had as yet no inkling as to who the real rulers were as to where they were that question seemed a little easier to answer it was highly probable that they were out in space on the asteroids that his instruments had detected as he had dropped in toward this planet so many years before he had made an error back then in not landing in the belt but at no time since had he experienced the emotion of regret or wished he had done differently both thoughts would have been incomprehensible to the nipe he had made an error the circumstances had been checked and noted he would not make that error again what further action could be taken by a logical mind none the past was unchangeable it existed only as a memory in his own mind and there was no way to change that indelible record even had he wished to do such an insane thing surely he thought the real rulers must know of his existence he had tried by his every action to show that he was a reasoning intelligent and civilized being why had they taken no action his hypotheses he realized were weak because of lack of data he could only wait for more information that and continue to work interlude 
Mrs. Forbisher touched the control button that depolarized the window in the breakfast room, letting the morning sun stream in. Then she said in a low voice, Larry, come here. Larry Forbisher looked up from his morning coffee. What is it, hon? The Stanton boys. Come look. Forbisher sighed. Who are the Stanton boys, and why should I come look? But he got up and came over to the window. See, over there in the walkway, toward the play area, she said. I see three girls and a boy pushing a wheel contraption, Forbisher said. Or do you mean that the Stanford boys are dressed up as girls? Stanton, she corrected him. They just moved into the apartment on the first floor. Who, the three girls? No, silly, the two Stanton boys and their mother. One of them is in that wheeled contraption. It's called a therapeutic chair. Oh, so the poor kid's been hurt? What's so interesting about that, aside from morbid curiosity? The boy pushing the chair went around a bend in the walkway out of sight, and Forbisher went back to his coffee while his wife spoke. Their names are Mart and Bart. They're twins. I should think, Forbisher said, applying himself to his breakfast, that the mother would get a self-powered chair for the boy instead of making the other boy push it. The poor boy can't control the chair, dear. Something wrong with his nervous system. I understand that he was exposed to some kind of radiation when he was only two years old. That's why the chair has all the instruments built into it. Even his heartbeat has to be controlled electronically. Shame, Forbisher speared a piece of sausage. Kinda rough on both of them, I guess. How do you mean? Well, I mean like, well, for instance, why are they going over to the play area? Play games, right? The one that's well has to push his brother over there. Can't just get out and go. Has to take the brother along. Kind of a burden, see? And then the kid in the chair has to sit there and watch his brother play basketball or jilai while he can't do anything himself. Like I say, kind of rough on both of them. Yes, I suppose it must be. More coffee? Thanks, hon. And another slice of toast, huh? End of part three.